my name's John Saville. I'm lucky enough to be the head of the College of Medicine, Veterinary Medicine, and I've got the happy task of introducing John Iredale, who's giving this evening's Medical Detectives Lecture. Um, last time I was here doing this, I claimed that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle might have sat here as a student, because the timing is almost right, and no one disagreed with me, so I'll claim it again. And maybe Conan Doyle sat precisely where you're sitting, who knows. Um, uh, and he would certainly have been listening to a Professor of Medicine lecture, but in Gilbert and Sullivan terms, John Iredale is the very model of a modern Major General. Uh, that is a, a clinical academic in today's mode. Uh, he's a, an expert hepatologist, a, a doctor of the liver, but he was an MRC clinical training fellow, an MRC clinician scientist, and an MRC senior clinical fellow before taking up the chairs of hepatology and then medicine in Southampton. And I sacked myself as professor of medicine to get him to come here as professor of medicine in 2006. Uh, he's now leading the MRC Centre for Inflammation Research. He's taking a very active role in Edinburgh's clinical ac uh, academic development and he has uh, a number of very important national roles but most importantly he gives a very good talk. So uh, it's a pleasure to invite him to tell you about a study in scarring the dark side of wound repair. Uh, thank you very much, John. Um, Dorothy, the audience, thank you all for inviting me to give this talk. I, I still haven't actually worked out the right way to respond to Professor Saville telling an audience that he sacked himself to employ me. Um, it's rare that you're responsible for your future boss's P45 landing on his desk. It's a, a curious situation to be in. So um, I thought I'd kick off with an allusion to the, the general detective theme. Um, I've called this the, the dark side of wound repair. Well, what do we mean by wound repair? Well, wound repair really is the crime scene that I'm going to talk about this evening. Wound repair is something that goes on in an almost trivial way in our bodies time after time after time throughout our lives, and we often don't even notice it occurring. But sometimes, and particularly in the context of diseases that go on for a long period of time, it can cause very significant problems related to its end stage, and its end stage is scarring. So, beginner's guide to wound repair then. Well, what do we mean? Probably the easiest model of wound repair to consider is what happens when you cut yourself. So here we are. This is obviously a man who's doing the washing up for the first time on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, and he's cut himself. Blood has flown here into the, into the cut. Red cells come in, a clot forms, and then you get lots of white cells. And these are the orchestrators of what's going to go on. And in response to them, they recruit a series of cells called fibroblasts and myofibroblasts. And these cells do two things. They produce a lot of collagen. Collagen is the molecule that's in your tendons. It's, it's like a rope. It's got enormous tensile strength. And this physically, this physically plugs the holes here and... At the same time, these cells contract and they pull the side of the wound together and they fill the gap. And as you know, if you cut yourself like this, you develop a scar that's obvious. It's often red and quite livid, sometimes for a number of weeks. But over a period of time, it gradually remodels. There's a, a normal surface layer of cells that grows on top and it becomes essentially remodeled to an almost normal, uh, an almost normal appearance. 
often you can see a faint white line suggesting that it's not gone completely back to normal. But to all intents and purposes, you've got a lovely, a lovely nice repair with a perfect uh, resolution of the tissue architecture. But this issue that recurrent or chronic inflammation could, could give rise to scarring is not, it's not a new idea at all. It's been kicking around for centuries. And in fact, one of my uh, and John's very illustrious predecessors, a guy called William Cullen, um, gave one of the first descriptions of this in a scientific way back in 1803, when he pointed out that if you looked at inflammation in the context of anything, an infection or a cut or a gunshot wound, there was the possibility that it would end eventually in what this, indivi this individual, William uh, Cullen, called a scirrus healing, which means a hard, firm scarring. I think because these episodes of wound healing and scarring occurs repetitively throughout our lives in an almost trivial way, it's very easy to forget just how disabling and problematic scarring can be. Now, here are some fairly gross examples of what can happen in the skin, and this is more than disfiguring. Uh, this is associated with real problems, with limb deformities. Um, certain people have genetic predispositions to develop really florid scars in response to even comparatively small tumour. And you can imagine the problems that these uh, scars cause in the skin. But what I'm interested in is what happens in internal organs because the process that occurs in your skin will occur in any organ in your body if it becomes inflamed. And this gives rise to a whole spectrum of very, very significant clinical disease and at enormous cost in terms of the health of the population, in terms of the impact on people's personal lives, early death, chronic ill health and morbidity, and just... Here are just three examples. Uh, fibrosis of the lung that can occur in response to a whole range of, of uh, stimuli that you'll be familiar, particularly living in the Edinburgh area. Those of you that are old enough to remember when there were pits at places like Bilston Glen, I can remember being a junior doctor at the city hospital and seeing numerous miners whose uh, occupational exposure to coal dust caused their lungs to become scarred and fibrotic and not to work properly. Here are some examples of kidney damage where you see the normal ability of the kidney to create urine is impaired by the presence of these scars. And the model we're going to think about tonight, primarily, is the damage that occurs to the liver as a result of inflammation. Liver scarring, which when it reaches the end stage like this, and you have little balls of normal liver surrounded by the scar tissue in blue on this diagram, it's called cirrhosis. And all cirrhosis means is end-stage liver scarring. Nothing more complex than that. And this is the sort of appearance you see under the microscope of a normal liver. And as the scarring progresses, you can see that the vascular structures within the liver become linked up by the scar tissue. And ultimately, you have isolated areas of regenerating liver cells surrounded by this dense blue scar tissue, which is full of these fibroblasts and myofibroblasts pulling the scar together and creating problems. Well, what causes this? Well, uh, you know, one of the difficulties with being a liver doctor is everyone always just goes, oh, yeah, you know, it's just people drinking too much. Well, undoubtedly it is. You'd be a fool to pretend that we weren't facing actually an epidemic of alcohol-related liver problems. And this is my favourite W.C. Fields quote, a woman drove me to drink and I never had the courtesy to thank her. But there are others. There are massive worldwide healthcare problems. There are 250 million people in Southeast Asia alone infected with hepatitis B, and a significant number of these will develop fibrosis and cirrhosis of the liver. There's then hepatitis C, another virus, with similar numbers of infected individuals. But thinking about the future, 
There are other problems that we're now facing, and I know some of you may have come to Jonathan Seckel's uh, lecture last week, but uh, French farmers create foie gras pâté by overfeeding geese, by force-feeding geese high-carbohydrate foods. Well, uh, we humans manage to overfeed high-carbohydrate foods of our own volition, and one of the uh, problems that complicates obesity, and particularly obesity in the context of diabetes, is that patients develop fatty liver. And fatty liver is exactly what foie gras pâté is. The trouble in humans is that this fatty liver can then develop inflammation, and this is a straightforward fatty liver here. This is a patient that, that does not drink alcohol, but they develop inflammation in a manner that's absolutely identical to that that you see in alcoholics, and the result is the same the development of scarring of the liver and of cirrhosis. And actually I got to thinking, talking about liver scarring is probably quite appropriate if you're going to consider fictional detectives like Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, of course, uh, uh, had uh, apparently very few vices. His friend, Dr Watson, reported that he had no vices except for his occasional use of cocaine. Now his use of cocaine, he didn't snort it, he used cocaine intravenously. And in those days, Dr. Watson didn't have disposable needles and syringes. He would have had a glass syringe and a reusable needle, which he would have had to grind to sharpen. And unless Dr. Watson was particularly astute at sterilising his needles, I would suggest to you that Sherlock Holmes was probably at significant risk of viral liver disease. But there's more. Hercule Poirot, a man given to eating foie gras pâté, obese. I mean, if ever there was a dead ringer to get uh, metabolic syndrome, to get obesity-associated diabetes, fatty liver, and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, you're looking at him here. Inspector Morse. In virtually every Inspector Morse novel, he is informed that he has diabetes and he's drinking too much by his doctor. So clearly this individual is at significant risk of liver disease. And then we have fictional detectives who are closer to home. And any of you who've read any Rebus books will understand that his propensity to hang out in the Oxford bar and drink bottles of whiskey in, in, in the flat at home uh, clearly would put him at risk of liver disease. In fact, so much so that, as some of you may be aware, he even has a beer named after him. So I've told you about scars and I've told you about why they concern me. But where I started in this was actually from a point of view of being slightly perplexed. We know that scars do undergo this remodelling and resolution. We've, we're faced with a tide of human disease that's related to scars within the body that apparently aren't being remodelled, and yet we know that just as you can get very significant scars in the skin, many scars in the skin will undergo remodelling that's so effective that the tissue architecture at the end of the process is barely disrupted, even though remodelling has occurred. So what determines whether a scar is remodelled or whether it stays put? And I think the first question we need to ask, uh, which if you like is the motive here, is why do we scar in the first place? Why, why have we got this system where we scar? Well, I, one can only conjecture, but actually I think the reason is very straightforward. And that is, even if we go back, well perhaps particularly if we go back before thinking about ourselves as being humans. If we go back to primitive organisms, if you breach your skin or any surface that's exposed to the environment, you are pot potentially immediately at risk of dehydration, further damage, microbial invasion. So having a system that can plug a hole is really, really important. And these 
aspects, these attributes, have been very important in defining how we respond to those surfaces that we have as mammals that are open to the air and to the environment, the skin, the lungs and the gut. And whilst I could make the case that this would be true even for a worm wiggling along the ground, even in advanced development, if you're a fellow like this chipping away at your rock, you're still going to need that same avid repair process if you cut yourself on one of the shards of rock uh, that you cleave off. But there's more than that. If you think again about primitive organisms, two of the things that they face relentlessly as they crawl along the ground or wiggle along the ground and ingest food is parasitism and poisoning. And the liver is very important in dealing with poisons. It's your major detoxifying organ. And this is a, a slide from a patient that's taken a paracetamol overdose. And what you're seeing here, this is a patient that recovered, but what you see here, this brown stain is staining the areas where scar is forming. And scar appears to be very important in physically holding the liver together as you recover from the episode of poisoning. But more importantly, I think, actually if you're parasitized, parasites are very, deal for the body, very difficult for the body to deal with. And the way in which the liver and the other internal organs handles parasites is to form a wall of scar tissue around them. That's a terribly cost and energy efficient way of dealing with the parasite. And although over a period of 10 or 15 years, ultimately that scar might spread and cause further problems, actually it's very valuable in the short term. And 10 years isn't short term in, in reproductive terms. If from birth scarring protects you against the ravages of the environment or parasitism, then it's going to be highly selected for in, in, in evolutionary terms. Whereas the uh, uh, insults like a chronic viral hepatitis that will take tens or 15 of years to uh, injure the liver and cause scarring that would lead to death, or indeed the more modern insults that we throw at the liver like alcohol, there is no evolutionary pressure at all for us to alter the way in which we scar our internal organs. So I think that basically we are saddled with scars because they are normal. They are the normal evolved response to injury. They've been evolutionarily optimised to be very avid, very aggressive, and therefore very effective. That they consist of multiple systems, and there isn't really time to go into this, one on top of another that ensure that there's really no breakdown. And I see scarring really as the price that we've paid to, to survive wounding on, on an evolutionary basis. So we need something to tackle this problem. So what we really need is we need some sort of uh, approach. There's a, there's a huge clinical need to develop an effective treatment for liver scarring and actually for scarring in general. And although I'm going to talk about the liver today, uh, I think it's important to understand that most of the approaches that I talk about, and my interest really is in developing treatments for scarring that would work body-wide, that would work on those skin scars as well as the liver or the kidney scars, and uh, that they would be generic with respect to the cause of scarring, that someone with alcohol damage or virus uh, would be uh, equally susceptible to treatment with the agents that we try and develop. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to establish the modus operandi of the, of the killer. We need to understand what's going on. So we need to define the cells and factors that mediate scarring in the liver and in so doing identify the processes that we're going to have to treat in order to target the scar effectively. So let's go back and revisit the players. We've got white cells that rush in and orchestrate things. We've got fibroblasts and myofibroblasts that come in and that secrete this rich knitted matrix 
that then pulls the scar together, but that in these internal organs is as much of the problem as it is of the cure. And this is where the story started for me. Um, I was working in Southampton, and my then boss, uh, who was a nice guy called Michael Arthur, um, went to work with this character, Scott Friedman. And Scott Friedman worked in San Francisco, and Scott Friedman had made a very important observation. Scott Friedman had been looking at the cells in the liver. And just as in the skin, we had a surface uh, which got damaged. In the liver, although it's in three dimensions, it isn't quite as, as neatly presented as in this diagram. We have cells called hepatocytes, and these are the biochemical factories of the body. These are the all-important cells in the liver. And these lie adjacent to another cell type, uh, which is called the hepatic stellate cell. And the hepatic stellate cell is filled with lipid and vitamin A. And then we have white cells, which in the liver we call Kupfer cells. And in the context of damage to the hepatocytes, these cells, the hepatic stellate cells, undergo a transformation. They spread, they become myofibroblast-like, they contract, and they produce this knitted collagen-rich matrix which causes the scarring. And they are driven by signals that they receive from the white cells here, the Kupfer cells. And the, well, he's made many observations, but one of the key observations made by Scott Friedman was that as these cells stored retinoid and vitamin A, they would be highly buoyant. And this was a very simple and fundamental observation, but it meant that for the first time we were able to isolate these cells in a pure fraction from the liver. And we can take these cells and we can plate them, and this is literally down a microscope looking at these cells as they lie in tissue culture, and you can see this, this sort of circle, almost like a rosary, around the centre of the cell here. These are the retinoid and lipid droplets. And what was essentially fortuitous but of enormous value was uh, the observation by Scott Friedman and his colleague Monty Bissell that these cells, if you plated them onto plastic, would undergo a spontaneous transformation into myofibroblasts. And thus, we had for the first time a model in which we could study the behaviour of the myofibroblasts in the liver on a day-to-day -day basis as they underwent exactly the transformation that they did during injury uh, within the liver itself. But being in a tissue culture flask, you could play with them. You could take things out, you could put things in. And we observed a number of features. The first thing was, we observed that signals that came from the white cells, or macrophages, would accelerate this process of driving the stellate cells to become myofibroblasts. We observed that they produced lots and lots of scar tissue. But there was something that was sort of nagging away at the back of our minds, and that was that it was well known that particularly the white cells, and we rapidly established that this was true of the myofibroblasts as well, would produce enzymes. Now, enzymes are complex proteins that will uh, catalyse a chemical reaction. In this case, the enzymes we're talking about are known as metalloproteinases, and these enzymes will chew up the collagen matrix. So these enzymes will degrade the scar. So we had this uh, observation, this uh, paradox, really, that we knew there were lots of enzymes, lots of metalloproteinases, lots of proteins available to chew up the scar, and yet the scar went on accumulating. And to cut a long story short, it became obvious that at the same time as the cells produced the scar, they also produced a molecule called a tissue inhibitor of metalloproteinase, which is a huge mouthful, so we called them TIMPs, but produced a TIMP, and the TIMP would block the enzymic activity, and these TIMPs are produced in excess. 
so that at the time the cell's producing the scar, it also produces so much TIMP that all of the scar tissue it produces remains and none of it gets broken down. And when we actually come to stain a diseased liver for TIMP, and the TIMP is staining up in brown here, you can see that the areas of scarring are absolutely covered in this protein. So there is no chance that the scarred liver will undergo any form of remodeling. There's no chance for this scar to be broken down. Now that's a whole series of concepts and about five years of work compressed onto one slide. So I thought what I'd do is, having had the opportunity to make an exciting video of this with a company in London, I'd show you the video. So, here is our handsome model. I'm ashamed to say it's not me. I'd like to pretend it was. And here is the normal liver. And inside the liver, you can see that the hepatocytes here, which we're looking down on, are becoming damaged as a result of viral infection. As a result of that, they become fragmented and they're producing mediators which are drawing in the white cells, those white cells that we saw before. And the white cells will, in turn, as we move on to the next phase, the white cells, in turn, produce mediators which will start to stimulate the hepatic stellate cells. So here are those mediators flying around in that area, and they're now stimulating these hepatic stellate cells, which shed their retinoid droplets, and they start to spread and become like these contractile myofibroblasts. As you can see here, they proliferate so that you have more of them. And then in this spread proliferative state, they start to produce the collagens that uh, mediate the scarring. And I'm afraid this is X-rated. I should have warned you beforehand. Some of you may have seen a bit of activity there off to the right, which was a, a little bit uh, dubious. And at the same time, they're producing in green there the TIMPs, which will prevent and inhibit the degradation of the collagens. So we've defined the cells and the factors that mediate scarring. We now need to work out what we're going to do to treat the scar. So what have we got by, if we've got our checklist, we know that there's a lot of collagen being produced. We know that the cells are producing TIMPs to prevent the collagen breakdown. And we know that actually the enzymes are there to break down the collagen. If only we could somehow harness that capacity. So what we need to do is we need to identify the processes that we can target to treat the scarring. So what we sought to do was to identify a model in which the scarring was broken down and to analyse that model and work out the sequence of events. Because if we could work out the sequence of events that happen as the scarring is successfully remodelled and the organ returns to a more normal architecture, that will give us all of the attributes of an effective treatment for a liver scar. Well, I hope I've established for you that one of the key things is going to be this balance between the breakdown enzymes, the metalloproteinases, and the TIMPs. And if there are lots and lots of TIMPs and relatively little activity of the metalloproteinases as a result, then you get scar accumulation. Whereas if the levels of TIMPs go down, you can facilitate, you can unharness the metalloproteinase activity and the scar will become degraded. And what we did was we established a model in rodents which demonstrated that after you withdraw, drew the inciting stimulus that caused, caused the scarring, you could establish a model in which the scarring would undergo spontaneous resolution. So this was great because this meant that we could actually look at the events on a day-to-day -day basis. And the first thing we observed was as well as the scar going away, there was a decreased number of myofibroblasts. So the cells making the scars looked like they were going away. And there was, as I say, increased scar breakdown in the liver. What was happening to these cells? Well, they were undergoing a process called apoptosis, which we're seeing here in tissue culture, where a cell essentially commits suicide and forms 
these tiny blebs, instead of being a lovely big poached egg shape, it forms tiny blebs and these little round, as you can see here in three dimensions, uh, almost like little pledgets of cell debris, each bound in a fragment of the membrane. And that means that they don't release their contents, they don't incite further inflammation, and they make themselves susceptible to engulfment by surrounding cells and by white cells. And when we came to look in the tissues, and others have looked in other tissues, including uh, Professor Saville and some work in the kidney, we found that this was a process that was clearly mediating the loss of the cells from the scar. So here the scar is in blue, and this little, this little cell in red is a cell undergoing exactly what you've just seen in the last video, where the cell contracts, makes itself digestible, and just melts away, disappears from the scar. And we can count in this model in which liver fibrosis was recovering, we can count the number of cells and show that over a period of time, as the liver recovers, the cells uh, numbers decrease until they're back, comparable with a normal liver. And we can see here in a, an, a single example from a human being, this is a patient with hepatitis B virus and a really nasty, thick, complex cirrhotic scar. This is on a liver biopsy. After a period of time and treatment with an antiviral medication, we see the same thing happen. And a careful analysis of this scar shows that the cells are melting away. So we've got a further attribute then that we would like to achieve. If we could cause suicide of the cells within the scar, then we have the option of making the scar smaller and facilitating things. And these two events are not unconnected. It became obvious when we analysed that model, where we can look on a day-to-day -day basis for what is happening, that as the cells melt away out of the scar, we know that the cells are the ones making the timps so indeed the TIMP level goes down here in yellow. And with the TIMP level going down in red, the amount of scar goes down back to a normal level. And as that happens, you see a subtle but important increase in the activity of the enzymes that are breaking down the scar. So, again, just to liven things up a bit, let's revisit that in, in video form. So here is our now cirrhotic liver. Uh, we assume that the virus has been eradicated uh, by virtue of antiviral medication. And you can see that the myofibroblasts, the stellate cells now, are undergoing apoptosis. They are rendering themselves small and edible by surrounding cells and by incoming white cells. And by virtue of that change then... As the white cells come in, which you will see now, they're now able to digest and to eat those cells, taking them out of the scar, out of the danger zone, and in response to eating those cells, our white cells are now producing the enzymes which are degrading the matrix. And they can go ahead and degrade the matrix for the simple reason that the TIMPs are no longer there, because the cells making the TIMPs have been swallowed. And there are a number of changes that occur. The hepatocytes grow their microvilli back, as you can see in the, uh, that final picture. So let's then go back and recap, because we've now got the players, we've got the mediators in progressive fibrosis, 
progressive scarring, and we've also got a list of the attributes that we would want of a perfect antifibrotic. So just to revisit, we have our, our villain of the piece, if you will, the stellate cell, which becomes the myofibroblast, which produces the collagens and produces the TIMPs that prevent the collagens being broken down. Orchestrating things here, we have the white cells, or Kupfer cells. So if we draw this out now as a sort of progression, we've established that Early on in disease, the products of damaged cells and the products of white cells will drive the process of creating these activated myofibroblast-like stellate cells. Their number increases in the scar, the TIMPs increase in the scar, the scar tissue itself will increase because the scar breakdown enzymes have their activity dampened. Whereas, in resolution with that remodeling again in summary, the number of these cells go down because they're undergoing suicide, in consequence, you lose the TIMPs as a consequence. The breaks are taken off the activity of the scar breakdown enzymes and the scar tissue disappears. So we've established, really, the ideal attributes of our approach to treating scarring, our antifibrotic therapy. And standing almost as a bridge here, almost as the gatekeeper, is the liver level of TIMP. So what are we going to do in order to treat this liver scarring? How are we going to approach it? Well, uh, there are a number of approaches. And there are a number of approaches being tried by different labs. Some are focusing on causing suicide of the myofibroblasts. Others are adopting an approach of trying to dysregulate the TIMP metalloproteinase balance with the aim of causing breakdown of the scar. We're currently going for a slightly different approach. And our approach is based on a hormone called relaxin. Well, what is relaxin? Well, relaxin is a hormone that was actually discovered a long, long time ago, 75 years ago, and it's got a number of specific functions in pregnancy. And one of the key functions that it mediates in pregnancy, uh, as well as uh, assisting the development of the mammary gland for lactation, is that it actually allows the female pelvis to open to allow the, the birth canal to be as large as possible. And at the front of the pelvis, there is a ligament. What's a ligament? Well, a ligament is really essentially a bundle of collagen, a bundle of this same scarring matrix together with some myofibroblasts. And this pulls together the, the, the front of the pelvis. And what relaxin does is relaxin softens that ligament and allows it to stretch and for the pelvis to expand. And it does that by mediating a down-regulation of TIMP and an up-regulation of the metalloproteinases, the enzymes that degrade collagen, that degrade the scar matrix. So for us, relaxin was a very interesting compound to look at. It ticks the boxes. It reduces TIMP. It reduces scar tissue, potentially. Of course, when we're talking about the pelvis, we're not talking about scar tissue, but biochemically, we're talking about the same process. And it accelerates scar breakdown. If we actually draw up a shopping list, which is what I've done on the right-hand side of the slide as you look at it, and we take our activated myofibroblasts, we've established that they are not a good thing because they produce lots and lots of TIMPs. They actually produce more than one TIMP. For simplicity, I'm just referring to them globally as TIMPs. I'm going to come back to alpha smooth muscle lactin. They produce lots of scar tissue. They produce lots of a, a, a cell signal called TGF-beta, and TGF-beta promotes the further production of TIMP and the further production of collagen from surrounding cells. They decrease their expression of 
metalloproteinases that might degrade scar tissue. And alpha smooth muscle actin is a very interesting protein. It's within the cells and it forms almost like a chain within the cell and facilitates a function which I mentioned right at the beginning, but which I haven't come back to. It facilitates the ability of the myofibroblast to contract and to pull the scar together. So as a consequence of that, these cells are highly contractile. It also, as uh, we've no noted before, uh, if there is anything that prevents the cells undergoing apoptosis or suicide, that's also going to be bad news for our scarring. And what we find, going back to using that very simple tissue culture model that I described early on, what we find when we put relaxin onto cells in culture is it's really rather good. It does just what we want. So it down-regulates the expression of the TIMPs. Well, that's great. It down-regulates alpha-smooth muscle actin, this contractile protein. It down-regulates the cell's expression of the, scarring, of the scar matrix collagen 1. It down-regulates the cell's ability to send a signal to neighbouring cells saying produce lots more scar tissue. It upregulates some of the scar-degrading enzymes and it down-regulates contractility. It probably even promotes very slightly a tendency for the cells to undergo suicide. So if you like, in terms of that tick box, going through the process, deciding what we want in terms of the attributes of a perfect antifibrotic, we now have a hormone, we have a natural product, which actually ticks virtually all of the boxes. Now, I'm not going to pretend it's perfect. For simplicity's sake here, I've got big arrows. That doesn't mean that the effects are equally dramatic. So, for example, the effect on increasing the amount of enzymes to degrade the matrix is far less than the effect on reducing the TIMPs. But nevertheless, it's a very, very valuable potential uh, approach to treating the scars. And similarly, if we take the cell cultures and we treat them with relaxin and we measure the amount of scar within the tissue culture, we can show that as you increase exposure of the cells to relaxin, as you'd anticipate on the basis of our tick list there, you can see that the amount of scar tissue produced by the cells goes down. And indeed, you can do a very simple experiment in an animal that's got a scar and show the same thing, that there is a dose response and relaxin will reduce the amount of scarring. But I want to come back in the final section now to this idea about the myofibroblast in a scar mediating contractility because there's a further attribute to advanced liver disease which we actually haven't discussed so far. And it's a very important attribute because it's one of the major causes of complications and death in our patients with long-term liver disease. And the fact that myofibroblasts contract within scars causes its own problem in the liver. Now, these are, these are two interesting pictures. On the top here, this is a, what's called a silver stain, and what it allows us to do is to see in three dimensions the uh, stellate cells in a myofibroblast form as they lie in the liver. And the reason that they look like they're all wrapped round transparent straws is that that's exactly what they are doing. You've remembered that wherever we've looked at them, and even in the video, they've always been in a little space surrounding a blood vessel. And uh, what these cells actually do is they physically encircle the blood vessels of the liver, which are called sinusoids. 
that's fine, but it means that when they contract, they actually restrict the blood flow through the sinusoid. You can see here that you might imagine that happening. The image is rather easy here. This is where a very clever artist has created a graphic demonstrating that. And you can imagine that the contractile filaments within these cells that I was telling you about, as they contract in this activated myofibroblast, will restrict the blood flow through the liver. Now, you might think, does that matter? Well, it probably does. It probably, restricting the blood flow through the liver probably actually is a factor that will relentlessly worsen the process of whatever it is that's underlying the development of fibrosis and cirrhosis. But it, it creates a far more, if you'll excuse the pun, pressing problem. And that is the problem of portal hypertension. The liver receives all of the blood supply from the gut. And the blood supply rushes from all of the organs within the abdomen up this vein, the portal vein. When the liver becomes fibrotic, and particularly when these cells uh, contract and pull down on the sinusoid and constrict the blood flow, the pressure in this blood vessel rises. <coughs> and the pressure in this blood vessel rises and causes uh, really gross and abnormal dilatation of blood vessels at the lower end of the esophagus and elsewhere in the body. It causes the leakage of fluid into the abdominal cavity, which you can see here, where the abdominal cavity itself will fill up with fluid, which is called ascites, and it causes the development of uh, abnormal blood vessels linking the portal system to the systemic system uh, in areas of the body, including around the umbilicus here. Why is this important? Well, it's important because this is really a, a complication that is the commonest cause of death in our patients with end-stage liver disease. Bleeding from these dilated vessels here is often catastrophic and can be rapidly fatal. And the presence of the fluid in the abdomen causes problems in itself and often becomes spontaneously infected. And once you've had spontaneous infection of your acidic fluid, the fluid in your abdomen, your survival rate at a year is about 40%, which is worse than most cancers. But people don't think of it like that because it's not cancer. So we were very, very interested, having been very pleased with ourselves about identifying relaxin, to actually look at whether relaxin would affect that contractility. And as I said before, relaxin does affect the, the expression of alpha smooth muscle actin here. And as you increase the concentration of alpha smooth muscle actin, uh, of, of relaxin, so the amount of this contractile filament within the cells go down. And you can then do a very, very simple experiment. You can take the cells in tissue culture and you can allow them to grow to confluence. And when you've got a completely confluent tissue culture well with cells in, there's a sort of uh, opacity to it because the cells aren't perfectly transparent. And what you can do then is you can tip on a substance to make the cells contract and you can actually look at how the whole volume of cells shrinks in. And this is what we've done in this bottom left panel here. And you can see that whereas in a well treated with relaxin you get a degree of contraction but it stops. In the wells that are treated with uh, other substances to make the cells contract but without relaxin you see this really, really, really uh, excitable cell pulling together and this group of cells almost acting like a sheet. It's almost like watching uh, a, a circular sheet pull together. So relaxin is absolutely stopping these cells from pulling together. It's reducing their contractility. The key question is, does that happen in vivo? The key question is, can you reduce that portal pressure that I've told you about by infusing relaxin. And this is very exciting because this really is 
data that the lab have generated within the last three to four weeks? And the answer is, I'm pleased to say, absolutely. What's very important if you're going to do an experiment like this is that you have a control so that you know that the act of infusing something doesn't affect either the portal pressure or the arterial pressure. So let's start at, whoops, let's start at the bottom where we kick off infusing saline and you can see that the arterial pressure flatlines here. Likewise, the portal pressure is unaltered. In, and this is in uh, a cirrhotic animal. If, however, in a cirrhotic animal you infuse relaxin, you get the same flatlining in the arterial pressure, so no adverse effects on the blood pressure, but you can see that the portal pressure drops by between 20 and 30%. So we've got the very real possibility that we have found an agent that not only will act against the scar, but it may, in the acute phase, also reduce the portal pressure. And it would therefore be something that we could deploy in the clinic or in, uh, in the hospital ward in the emergency setting. So that's the good news. Well, now for the bad news. And my relaxing now the bad news slide is about three years old, which is quite depressing. Relaxin itself is very like insulin. It's a very small molecule. And that means it's got a short half-life. It degrades very rapidly in the body. It's very safe to use. There have been clinical trials of relaxin. But the trouble is that unless you're infusing it constantly, the levels drop off very rapidly. And we've been defeated thus far by the chemistry. We've had a number of relationships with pharmaceutical firms. We've screened what the pharmaceutical firms call their libraries. Their libraries are basically a whole series of compounds that can be used to inhibit specific biochemical processes. And we've looked for relaxin analogues and relaxin mimetics. But to date, we've found nothing uh, that's viable. So does this mean anything to anyone in the audience? No? No, I'm pleased because it means nothing to me. But you show this to a chemist and they get really excited. This is, this is actually the gene sequence of relaxin. And one of our chemists in the University, Manfred Auer, saw this and got very, very excited about the particular structure and basically said, I know what the problem is and I know how to fix it. And Manfred has clever computer programs which can take that and actually give us a three-dimensional diagram of what relaxin is like and can show us areas of the molecule, I'm not saying it's here because I can't remember where it is, but areas of the molecule perhaps like here that are the point at which the relaxin docks with its receptor on the cell and that mediate its effect. And that means that Manfred is then able, using complex combinatorial chemistry techniques, to generate relaxin mimetics. And again, this is very recent data. I have no idea whether this will work in the long term, but it's got a lot of uh, potential. These are, this is a picture of some cells, and this is a fluorescently labelled relaxin mimetic that Manfred has made in his laboratory. And this is it, binding to the receptors of uh, myofibroblasts in tissue culture. So we know that at least some of our products are longer lived than the natural products and we know that they will bind to the cells. So we've got a lot of work to do but we've got some steps forward. So I'd just like to summarise now with three final slides. We're stuck with scarring and actually scarring has served us proud. We really shouldn't complain about it but in the modern age where we're not facing the perils of parasitism or saber-toothed tigers it remains a major problem, particularly for internal organs and a cause of dysfunction. Currently, it's untreatable. And what we've identified is that it's not just the over-exuberant synthesis, the over-exuberant production of scar tissue, but an inhibition of the breakdown mechanisms is key and should be a big clue to how we tackle it. 
and that I hope I've given you an idea. I don't know, in five years' time, I might come here and say, do you know, relaxing turned out to be a load of hooey. The trouble is, you have to pursue these, you have to work on these targets, and you have to try every possible avenue. But at least we're now, for the first time, identifying rational strategies to approach scarring. So coming back to where we started then, we know what the crime scene is, it's inflamed tissue. We've got an idea of the motive, we know why we scar and we know why we're saddled with it. And we've got the modus operandi of our chief suspect. We know that the myofibroblasts are the, the villains, we know that they produce too much scar tissue, we've identified the TIMPs as a key molecule that we might manipulate, and we know what the enzymes are that we want to degrade the scar tissue. And as I say, the investigation's ongoing, but at least we've got some leads to follow. And if you'll forgive me, I, I, I actually quite like um, Conan Doyle books. I, I, I sort of read them intermittently. They're good kind of bedtime reading. And I was, I was just thinking about, there is a, there's a fantastic book, which I'm sure many of you read, by a guy called Mark Haddon called The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which is actually a delightful moving and very humorous book about a boy with autism, but he in turn nicked the idea of the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime from Conan Doyle. Now, in, there's a Conan Doyle story called Silver Blaze in which there's a racehorse that goes missing. It's stolen from a stables. It's a bit like red rum of the, of the uh, 19th century. And what happens is that the flatfoots from the yard arrest someone and Holmes is absolutely convinced that they've arrested the wrong person. And the reason he gives they've arrested the wrong person is because the stable dog didn't bark at the, time that the, at the time that the horse was stolen, and that meant that whoever stole the horse knew the stable dog. So Gregory, the flatfoot, says, is there any other point to which you wish to draw my attention? And Holmes says, to the curious incident of the dog in the night time. And Gregory says, the dog did nothing in the night time. And Holmes said, that was the curious incident. And going right back to my first slide, there is a resonance of this with the way in which we sometimes think in, in science. And that is, for me, my interest in this really was sparked by the perplexity of why it was that some scars underwent remodelling and others didn't. It was what wasn't happening rather than what was happening seemed to me to be the more interesting question. So I'll leave you with that thought. And as is only appropriate, just thank my many collaborators, most of them, they're too numerous really to acknowledge on, on this slide. These are really uh, the major ones. Uh, and to thank you all for your attention. This production is copyright. 